So probably this will be the... So probably this will be the last um, talk in the series that I began many weeks ago. And uh, it began with a simple description of what mindfulness is. In the Zen tradition, they have an expression called uh, single enlightenment, or sometimes uh, simple enlightenment. And that is the kind of um, uh, wonderful experience of being very, in the, very much in the present moment, and really appreciating the present moment, being very present for the present moment, and kind of, in a sense, enlightened, kind of awakened to the present moment. But it's called a single enlightenment, or a simple enlightenment, because enlightenment is much more than a childlike just being present for this moment in its pristine glory. Because enlightenment or liberation is more than a kind of presence uh, we bring to this moment here. Um, it's possible to lose yourself in this moment to be very present here. And it's kind of simplistic. It's kind of reductionalistic because we're much more than, we're much more than just the ability to be present here and now. We have the ability to think about the past. We have the ability to think about the future. And um, so liberation is more than a presence we bring though the presence we bring to our life is a foundation for liberation. And liberation involves a transformation and a transformation of us. And so today I want to talk some more about liberation, which was a topic from last week. And, um, and as I was thinking about uh, this topic for today, I was reflecting, reflecting a little bit on how many religions focus on an unseen world. And uh, sometimes very explicitly, where the unseen world is the big part of what the religious faith is about. Unseen, unseen world of God or gods and heavens and hells and many different things. And as with many religions, Buddhism also uh, puts an emphasis on an unseen world. And in, with the same, maybe the same sense, there's more to this life than what, how we normally experience it. And many people kind of, at some point, realize there has to be more. There has to be more than, you know, for some people, you know, the endlessly going to their job is not something that brings them a tremendous amount of meaning. There has to be more. Or certain kind of pursuits or certain kind of way of living. There has to be more than this. There has to be more this life of living. Maybe it's okay or maybe it's not okay. Maybe there's a lot of suffering a part of it, a lot of difficulty, a lot of challenges, a lot of poverty. And so people have said, there must be more, not that something else that's possible. And so Buddhism points to this something else that's possible, something which we can call, we could perhaps call the unseen world. But unseen, not because um, it's not seeable, but rather it's unseen because we haven't yet seen it. And... Um, and it's also unseen because it doesn't belong to what we can see with our eyes. It's not doesn't have to do with you know the external world, the empirical world, but rather it's something we see with an with an inner eye. So something we see with um, what sometimes is called the Dharma eye or the Buddha eye or the Wisdom eye. So rather than something that's unseen because it's by nature unseeable. Buddhism focuses on what we normally don't see as we go about our life, 
but is seeable, but is seeable in the, with the inner eye. And uh, when the Buddha talked about the Dharma and talked about nirvana, a synonym for liberation, uh, he emphasized that it was something you can see here and now, to be seen directly. It's to be seen directly. But normally people don't see the Dharma. Normally people don't, people don't see nirvana. And when he tried to explain or describe how nirvana can be seen, that should be interesting, right? How do you see liberation, freedom, awakening? How do you see it? Um, how can it be directly visible for you right here now? And what he said is that you, you see liberation by the absence of greed, hate, and delusion. That we have the capacity to notice the presence of greed, hate, and delusion, and also we have the capacity of seeing the suffering that follows in the wake of our greed and our hate and our delusion. And it's possible to see the, um, the absence of greed, hate, and delusion, and it's possible to see the sense of freedom or peace that might come with a proper liberation from greed, hate, and delusion. And in seeing that, in seeing the absence or the liberation of greed, hate, and delusion, then we've seen liberation. We've seen nirvana. The absence of greed, hate, and delusion is not visible if, you know, if you're caught, if you're blinded by greed, hate, and delusion. If you're blinded by desire and attachments and fear, then it can't be seen. But when that's just dropped away, then it, something you can see, the inner eye can see that directly. So there are two streams or currents, in, maybe currents, in the flow of life, in the life stream of a human being. And one stream is a stream that in Buddhist practice we're meant to go up against. Go up, upstream from the stream, up, up current, flowing up current. And that's the current of greed, hate, and delusion. The ways in which uh, attachments and clinging, addictions, compulsions, fears kind of drive our lives, motivate our life. That is something we have to somehow overcome. And that's ascribed in Buddhism as going upstream. It's called going upstream or upcurrent from many of the popular currents of what we can see in our society. In much of society seems kind of it's very easy to see. There's a lot of greed, hate, and delusion that's kind of rampant. So that's one stream, the one current. The other current is is a current um, of the Dharma. And someone who has tasted the first taste of liberation is said to have entered the stream or entered the current. But not the current of greed, hate, and delusion, but the current that leads to full liberation. And so there's these two currents that going on. One we have to kind of work against and the other that we have to get ourselves into and then be carried down along it. And so there comes a point that um, we start crossing from one current to the other. If all, if all your life is about is greed, hate, and delusion or attachment, then it's work to practice. So if your mind, if you sit down and meditate and your, and your thinking mind is addictive, then to a certain degree, it's, it's work to let go, it's work to relax, it's work to kind of 
uh, overcome, be stronger than the compulsive mind. But at some point, um, the force of the compulsive mind quiets down enough, or at some point, we switch gears, switch tracks in the mind, and we enter this stream where it becomes, it's kind of like a gravitational pull or stream that's carrying us towards a sense of peace, a, a sense of uh, freedom, a sense of spaciousness, of uh, transparency. And, um, and when you enter the stream of the Dharma, then you can feel that there's kind of like, you, you mean, there's, a, there's a pull towards goodness. There's a pull towards something really wonderful. And it's a magic, it's, I don't know if it's magic, but it's, it's a really a special moment or a special thing to be able to see or feel a, tr- a move from one gravitational force to another, from one current to the other. And uh, for some people who practice, um, at some point, you, you get kind of right to the juncture between these two streams. And they might kind of sway back and forth. They get caught a little bit in the stream of greed, hate, and delusion. But they're able to pull themselves out of that and find themselves in a different stream. And then you can, they can feel the pull or feel that wonderful kind of um, floating that goes on that moves you down towards a greater sense of freedom. But maybe, you know, but it's not stable. And so at some point, you know, the wind blows you over a little bit, back over to the other stream, greed, hate, delusion, and you caught, caught, in that, caught there. And it might take, you know, a few hours or days or months to realize, oh, wait a minute. I've been caught up in that stream. Let's get back to the one I prefer, go back to the one of freedom. But it's a great thing at some point to feel that there's this force or this momentum or this clear sense of possibility or this um, towards a level of peace or freedom that's almost like beckoning us, calling us, come here, or kind of pulling us, like that's where we want to go. It's not like you have to reason with yourself, oh, I'd like to be free. It's not that you have to want to be free because you're trying to get away from something that's painful. But freedom is almost like it's something which is kind of like pulling us or, or um, inviting us or um, to itself. As a Chinese tradition said, one famous Chinese teacher, he said, awakening beckons us in everything. I think it's a beautiful thing. It's kind of everything, and everything you find kind of beckoning to, you know, come here, come here and be free. And what is it to find the freedom in everything you encounter? So, um, so another kind of way of talking about this, these two streams perhaps, is that you have going up a mountain and down a mountain. You go up the, you have to go up to the top of the mountain to be able to go down. But going up the mountain is hard work. And once you get up to the top, then it's relatively easy to go down. You kind of, the gravity is in your favor. So at some point, with liberation, uh, with practice, uh, the gravity is in our favor. And when this is, uh, um, and one, one clear marking of this juncture is called stream entry, entering the stream. When you enter the stream, some things, um, It's a remarkable moment, it's a remarkable experience, because you'll never quite be the same again after that. Even though you might kind of still be sliding back and forth. But once you really have a taste of being the stream, gotten really wet in the one stream, even if you slide back to the other currents, you're, you know, you've been changed by that experience. And it becomes easier and easier to slide back into the current again, the, one you, the current of peace or freedom.
When a person has entered the stream, the stream of the Dharma, the stream of liberation, it's said that uh, they've been changed in three ways. And this is a very important idea of change because many people, when they think about nirvana or freedom, they think that it's an experience. And it's an experience that you're supposed to, you know, really have an experience, you're supposed to have this experience and then you've been verified. Oh, I had this perfect experience and therefore I can have a badge. And, uh, you know, I've, you know, I've been to Disneyland and... And the, the value of nirvana, the value of liberation, is not in having the experience, but rather the value is in how the experience has changed us. It's how it's transformed us. So in that sense, it's not so important to know exactly what nirvana is. It's a little bit difficult to describe exactly what the experience of liberation is in its kind of profundity, in its deepest sense. But it's not so important to know what it is, even though you can experience it, as it is to allow it to change us, to be changed by it. So stream entry involves three different changes. And um, the, uh, the first one that uh, usually lists, uh, three, and then there's other ones that are also often listed. The first change is w- once, you have, once you've entered the stream, there's a sense, very clear sense, that the self as an identity, as a personality, is not something that has absolute reality, substance anymore. There's a feeling that, there's a clear seeing and understanding that um, the usual things that we take as self, my personality, my body, my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, my biography, my history, you know, my family, all these things which have some, some certain kind of reality are not really so interesting or not so valid as, as, as claiming this is who I really am. I don't know if this works as, a, um, as an analogy or as a pointing to this, but I'll try. I'll try. Um, without the help of a mirror, I, you know, we, don't, we can't see our eyes. But our eyes function. Have you tried to turn your eyes around really quickly so you can take a look at your eyes? <laughs> but if you kind of use your eyes to try to get a sense of your eyes, what happens? You can't quite get there, can you? Maybe a little bit like touching, trying to touch your right elbow with your right hand. You can't quite do it, right? But you know, you know, your right hand knows there's an elbow there, but... So, you know, you know there's eyes there, but you can't quite see them. But if you try to see them, how much space is there behind your eyes? Does it make sense to talk about space behind your eyes? Are your eyes, as you try to look at your eyes, are they transparent? Are they invisible? Are they, do they kind of disappear? They're there, but you can't quite get to them. So it's similar with the sense of self. If you try to find the self, it's kind of like trying to look for your eyes. You won't find it. 
does that mean that there is no self? Or there is a self that you can't find? Back there, like there, there are eyes, right? So therefore, if you use the same analogy, well, there must be a self, but just you can't get to it. Whether there is a self or not a self is not so important. What's important is that if you try to look for a self, you won't find it. And once you get that sense that the self is kind of like the eye that you can't find, then you're not going to take, oh, my, my face, that's my true self. Or my emotional life is my true self. Or my history is my true self. Or my job, you know, my, my status, that's my... You kind of realize that when you turn back to look at the self, it's, not, it's a transparent, kind of empty phenomena that kind of doesn't work to pin something onto. It's kind of like you try to uh, do water painting on water. You know, you're not going to get much of a painting, especially if it's flowing water. It just doesn't stick. So it has some sense that there's a that that nothing that the self there's no there's no self upon which you can pin anything onto it's transparent it's, trans, it's translucent it's transparent it's empty it's spacious it's peaceful it's vast it's nothing it disappears it's still it's quiet And this, this sense that, uh, so, so, so it's, it's said that the first transformation is overcoming the personality view or the belief in a solid, substantial self. And I bet many of you have overcome or grown out of certain, grown out of, out of the tendency to take certain parts of who you are as yourself. This is who I really am. And uh, like for me, I can remember really well um, how utterly wrapped up or how incredibly closely bound my sense of self was, to the, was connected to the presence or absence of zits. <laughs> it wasn't so long ago. But uh, that one doesn't really get me much anymore. <laughs> you, know, I don't, you know, myself is not tied up with my sense of self. You know, I couldn't care less. And so, so, you know, there's all kinds of ways things we grow out of. You know, so maybe at some point, success and failure at work or perhaps having a particular job is like the be-all and end-all of your sense of self and success. And at some point, it loses its appeal. We realize that you know, or you're not going to tie your sense of self to that, or you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that change. You know, people who get sick. Some people get you know chronic deep illnesses, and um, you know, there's certain kinds of preoccupation with trying to present themselves in a good way that just doesn't work anymore. After 
one woman I know who's had, I don't know, probably at least 20 surgeries. One more surgery that discards, dis, uh, disfigures her face or something. Her sense of self is not tied to her face anymore. After all these years of surgery, just, you know, well, she's just glad to be alive. A friend of mine was meditating in India. And a teacher was giving a Dharma talk and looked right at him and said, you are not your face. And the whole world vanished for him. Everything dropped. And that was one of the most important kind of experiences he had in his uh, meditation life, was having everything, the whole world, self, everything just dropped away. So now the shock of someone being told, you are not your face, somehow it just kind of helped his mind just let go. So the first transformation is a kind of giving up of a certain kind of belief or clinging to self. The second transformation that happens is giving up a clinging or a belief in the efficacy of religious ethics, precepts, and religious practices. Isn't that strange? After all this huffing, all this huffing and puffing, people spending a lot of time practicing and practicing, practicing, living an ethical life, and then the first kind of experience of realization, you kind of is giving up the belief in that. Well, then it's party time, right? <laughs> finally, you know, finally, I knew this Buddhist practice was kind of, you know, was a little bit off, and finally got, got it. <laughs> Is that, that's not quite what it's about. <laughs> but um, it does point that there's a lot of clinging, a lot of attachment around religion. There's an identity that people have to religion. You know, and I've known people who've uh, worn religious outfits. Um, when I was at the, first came to the San Francisco Zen Center to practice there in the late 70s, there was a kind of a uniform that unofficial uniform of those people who really were really cool Zen. <laughs> it's important to be cool Zen. And they were these fat pants, these big kind of bulky pants that you could meditate in. And then there was some kind of Amish vest and a Danish school bag. <laughs> and then you could always, you know, add a few things, like, you know. There are a few other kind of Buddhist paraphernalia you could add to really do it well. And, you know, it kind of seemed a little bit, you know, they're all kind of practical things, so it probably made sense to the first person who discovered all these things. But when they became a uniform, you got a sense of the attachment people had to proving their identity as a Zen Buddhist. And, you know, all kind of, in all, in all Buddhist traditions, you know, that I know of people get attached to an identity, you know, being a certain kind of Buddhist. I'm a Buddhist. Thank you, so it's important everyone sees that. 
So that's one form of attachment to identity. Another attachment is kind of attachment to security, to being right. Buddhism is one of the great world religions. It has great authority and prestige and power. You get non-profit status in America. (laughs) And, um, you know, the government takes it seriously. So, you know, uh, when when I was um, a new Zen student, um, my mother didn't know much about Zen or Buddhism. But uh, somehow or other, she picked up that uh, the governor of California back then hung out in Zen circles. So the Zen stuff couldn't be all that bad. So, um, so the, um, so the, so you have great religion, right? So you have the, so people feel like I finally got it, the truth. This is it. I don't quite understand it yet, but, but we cling to it as going to save us because now I know I'm right. So the idea of being clinging to being right, um, clinging to religion because it's going to save us. You know, they can, you know. In particular, the clinging to rites, you sometimes it's translated as clinging to rites and rituals, which is a kind of Victorian way of translating this. The uh, actual Pali is sila, which means ethics or virtue, and uh, bata or vata, and vata means practice, practices. So um, the um, it's the belief that somehow in doing the practice. Somehow the practice itself or, or adhering to ethics itself is liberation, is going to do it. And the ethics and practices are necessary part of the path. We can't dispense with them. But we can't cling, cling to them as being the only thing necessary. To say it simplistically, there also has to be a profound letting go that happens. And if you hold on to mindfulness practice, concentration practice, or virtue as being it, that's going to be a barrier to liberation. They can only take you so far. And so the the experience of entering the stream shows you that something different is needed that's uh, above and beyond just doing the practices. The third transformation is a transformation of uh, giving, of, 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 of no longer having uncertainty about what is and is not the path. And it said that, uh, it's kind of, dis- kind of discouraging maybe, but it said that uh, you don't really practice Buddhism until you've had the first experience of liberation. So people practice Buddhism for years and years without any real experience of liberation. Um, so they're still practicing, but you don't really know what it's about until you've tasted it for yourself. I mean, you might know you might know in theory what swimming is about, and you know it's possible to learn to swim, and you can even read books about it, and, um, and take lessons in it. But um, but when you really learn to swim yourself, then you have no more uncertainty about that it's possible to learn to swim because you really learned it. So in the same way, when you really have the experience of liberation, then there's no more uncertainty about what it's all about. And there's no more uncertainty about what the path is about, what it takes to get there, the work that needs to be done, the inner thing that has to happen. So those are the th- uh, said to be the three primary markers of how a person's changed by this first, um, by this entering the stream. Um, there is a couple of other minor things that are mentioned. Uh, one of them is 
um, that the person is um, prone to or seriously prone to uh, being ethical. That the person who has entered the stream is it's very unlikely that they're going to do something seriously unethical anymore because of what's been, how they've been changed and transformed. Some inner sensitivity that's uh, awoken. And the other, maybe in the corollary to that, is uh, the idea that once you've entered the stream, you'll never get reborn again in, a he- in hell. So this is a traditional Buddhist idea having to do with the idea of rebirth, that once you've had stream entry, you'll never get reborn in hell. For those people who don't adhere to the idea of rebirth, it can be understood that you're not going to be find yourself in hellish mental states in this lifetime anymore. That you're saved from serious bouts of anxiety, depression, despair, the kind of very kinds of hell realms that people can go into. No matter what happens to you, no matter what happens to your external world or your health, that somehow you're saved from the hellish mental realms that might happen. Another thing that happens, oh, I want to go back, if I may, may I? To the, <laughs> you know, I was, you're a captive audience, right? I get to, I get this, I'm, this, I'm in this profession where I can just have these monologues and <laughs> no one interrupts and it's a rare thing, right? I try to do this at home and <laughs> it doesn't quite work. Um, it's a little bit of maybe a paradoxical this idea of giving of letting go of the belief in a self in a substantial kind of self or taking something as my personality because um, you could say well I'm the kind of person who's given up in the belief in self <laughs> <laughs> And, um, but with liberation comes a, a kind of a not caring so much in a certain way about whether you are not liberated. You know, you're not tying your sense of self to it so much. Once upon a time in a Zen monastery in Japan, there came a um, young man to practice there. And he was quite an exceptional man. He had been raised uh, with a good, very good education, parents were well-to-do. He was extremely smart, very talented, had a lot of different capacities. Things were relatively easy for him in his life. Maybe because of that, uh, and because of his great intelligence and perception, um, he had uh, actually studied uh, many of the religions of the world because he felt that something more was needed. He wanted that unseen world, something more than this world that was kind of the idea of pursuing money or status or the many things that his parents wanted him to do just didn't have much meaning for him. So he started, he was studying religion and he settled on Buddhism and he entered the Zen monasteries in order to get enlightened. And um, he had a, he, he really impressed people because of all his capacity that he had. And certain, sure enough, when he entered the monastery, um, he his practice unfolded very quickly. He practiced, you know, he was very diligent, he was very disciplined. 
He was very perceptive, astute in his practice. He overcame a lot of the hindrances pretty easily. Got very concentrated pretty easily, very quickly. And the other monks were amazed. And who's this guy? We've been practicing here, sweating ourselves for a long time. And we've made progress, but it's really slow. And this guy just seems to be breezing along. And then within a few months of being in the monastery, he had his first experience of realization, of stream entry. At which point, the abbot kicked him out of the monastery. Out. Wouldn't even let him kind of protest, have time to protest. Just get out, get out, get out. And in Japan, when you become a monk, it's a very dramatic thing to do socially because Japanese culture is very, um, uh, it's very, uh, how to say it, the social network is very powerful in Japan where you fit in the social network. And if you ever step outside of the social network that you're born into or you're raised in or something like that, it's, um, it's very hard to come back in again. So in Japan, in America, if you get ordained as a Zen priest, you can do it for a while and then go back and get a job and you know, don't tell anybody, it's fine. But, um, but in Japan, if you step out of the, you become a Zen priest, um, it's like you've stepped out of, you've, you've, you've disconnected yourself with society. And society doesn't open its doors again up to, to let you in. And so you really step out. So this man was just kicked back out on the street. Out, 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 with no support, anything. And the other monks were amazed. Why did you do that? I mean, this guy had all this promise. He was so, so capable. He had his first experience of realization. Why did you kick him out? And the abbot said, He hadn't suffered enough. He hadn't, he hadn't suffered enough. He had to realize, that he, had, he had to somehow uh, develop or discover a greater degree of humility. Or he had to somehow be able to whittle away at his conceit. And the place where conceit was going to whittle away was not here in the monastery. He had to go back into the world to have that experience. Even though a person gives up the belief in a self, there can still be conceit. And the difference is, one is, it's, a, it's more of an insight. The first realization, the first entering the stream, is, is, a, um, is an insight, an understanding, a cognitive shift that happens. But a cognitive shift, as difficult as it is, is much more difficult than an affective shift, a shift in our affect, a shift in our emotional motivations and what drives us. And conceit belongs to that world of affect, not to, not to kind of understanding. So once a person has entered the stream, the next kind of uh, level of work that needs to be done has, has to do with the affective level of human, human being. And the tradition talks about then beginning to lessen and finally do away with um, uh, greed, addiction, the forces of desire, the lust, as well as the forces of ill will and anger and aversion. 
So as, as, as we kind of get, find ourselves deeper and deeper in the stream, going flowing along, there's a lessening and lessening of these forces. But the forces of greed and hate don't, don't disappear with, the, with first entering the stream. More work has to happen. And as, as, this, as uh, greed and hate lessen and lessen, so at some point they're supposed to disappear entirely, then one of the things that's left to do is to overcome conceit. The tendency to kind of uh, compare ourselves, self and others, various ways, or to take it as I'm the one who's enlightened, thank you. The sense that, you know, that there's a one here. So the, um, the path to liberation begins with mindfulness. It's strengthened with concentration. The doors to liberation are opened within, by insight. Mindfulness brings concentration. Concentration brings more mindfulness. Mindfulness and concentration together bring insight. Insight opens the doors for the possibility of liberation. It can seem like a long path. But liberation, freedom, is only as far away, is as close to you as your own breath. It's as close to you as the experience of your eyes looking right now. It's not something that is so far away. It's as close to you as the space that surrounds you and the stillness that's in that space. It's as close to you as as close as the blinking of an eye. And I believe that's uh, well before entering the stream that some people can have an intuition or a sense of a possibility of being free, of being without compulsions, without contractions, without clingings of the mind or the heart. Where the heart and the mind are set free or are at peace or become boundless or become transparent or become still or become empty or disappear. There can be a, a kind of intuitive sense of that or a feeling of it. It's right here, not so far away. Awakening beckons us from within everything. And perhaps it's in stillness that you can get the clearest sense of freedom, of peace. And so there's a, uh, a poem by, the, by Basho, the Japanese poet, that goes, the temple bell stops. So it rings, you hear the ringing. The temple bell stops. But the sound keeps coming out 
of the flowers. What is that? After the, after the ringing stops. What is it that comes out of the flowers? What is it that comes out of everything? Liberation, the path of liberation begins with mindfulness. No moment moment of mindfulness is ever wasted. A moment of pure mindfulness partakes of liberation. There's an echo, a resonance of freedom in one pure moment of mindfulness. And one of the one of the meanings of that is that one of the implications of that is that the the means, the goal is found in the means. That even though the goal of liberation can be seen as something that's far away, it's also something that's supposed to be found in the very means towards it. So is there some way of practicing mindfulness so that moment of mindfulness is a moment of being free of greed, of hate, of aversion or clinging. Just seeing what it is, just this moment, just this breath, just this feeling, just this thought, just this sound. Very simply, this moment. And whether a person has entered the stream or not, the practice of mindfulness is the same. And what's very important is after entering the stream is continue practicing. Some people will stop practicing after they've entered the stream. Had that taste, that experience. And I think it's a great waste. It's not uncommon for Buddhist hear stories of Buddhist teachers. Someone comes to a Buddha teacher and says, Oh, I've had some great realization experience. You know, finally got it. And the teacher will yawn or say, Oh, oh, just something else you have to let go of now. <laughs> Somehow be dismissive of it. Because of the tendency to cling to that, hold on to that. And they're doing and clinging, not continue with the practice moment by moment. Realization entering stream is a really beautiful thing, phenomenally beautiful experience or event in life. But at least as beautiful and profound is a moment of practice. And the commitment to practice, the dedication to make practice a central part of one's life, and to do it moment after moment, to do it before realization, during realization, after realization, just coming back to the practice, just moment by moment. Almost as if, you know, the realization is almost incidental if it happens. Because what's important is just keep doing the practice. Keep doing the practice. Keep it going. Keep it going. And if you keep it going that way, just focusing on the practice, maybe the abbot won't have to kick you out of the monastery. Practice, practice, practice. May all of you love the practice.
Thank you very much.